0: Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve Podcast, where the sexaholic or sex addict can find experience, strength, and hope from those that have traveled this road ahead of us. This episode is produced in the spirit of the 12th step to carry the message to other sexaholics. Every effort has been made to remove full names of the speakers in these recordings. This is done in order to follow the 11th tradition regarding anonymity at the level of press, radio, television, and film. This podcast is self supporting through contributions. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and would like to support The Daily Reprieve, please do so by going to GoFundMe.com, search for The Daily Reprieve, and click on Donate Now. Without further ado, please enjoy today's Daily Reprieve. Tom, I'm a recovering sexaholic. Our
1: our speakers tonight are um, two people from here in the Nashville area. Um, both of whom um,
0: have had great influence on my life attending the meetings around here. Um, I'm not
2: sure which of you wants to start. Um, (laughs) Our first
1: speaker (laughs) is going to be Lee T. um, And I really don't know much to say other than um, just thank you for being who you are because I've benefited so much from you. Thank you. First speaker, too. My name is Lee, and I am a sexaholic, and I've been recovering at this, or at least slugging away at it, since uh, sometime in November in 1985, but I was a little foggy at that time, and I don't remember the exact date, but um, it's it's been a while and uh, and I you know I feel grateful for that. Uh I'd like to welcome everybody from out of town to Nashville. It's a great place to be a recovering sexaholic. Um, and I am sure that if I had resided uh other places I may well be dead now. And uh, I'm grateful for the fact that I lived where I lived in 1985 and 1986. Um and I would like to uh, thank whoever it was that decided to let me share tonight, because that always, always is beneficial to me. And I'll try to time myself so that I won't get carried away. Uh, it is amazing to see how many people are here tonight. I mean, that's just, uh, it's just terrific. I, uh, I look out here and I was telling them for before the, before the uh, meeting that I'd prepare to talk on humility, but there are not quite enough people here. So... <laughs> So you'll have to get my second talk. Uh, uh, actually, I think it's ironic uh, that here I am standing, about, standing in front of about, uh, I don't know how many people, uh, about to talk about my sexual behavior when I spent most of my life trying to conceal it. And uh, that's, a, uh, uh, that's a statement of a dramatic change in and of itself. And as I, as I stand here, it's quite apparent that uh, I have uh, a powerlessness over lust, or I wouldn't be standing up here needing this 12-step recovery program. I also uh, have had powerlessness over alcohol, so I'm a member of AA. Powerless over narcotics, I uh, qualify for N.A., I then started to think that I'm, I'm having trouble with relationships for the addicts in my life, so I'm I qualify for Naranon. Um, I have alcoholics in my life, so I qualify for Al-Anon. I have overeaters in my life, so I qualify for Oanon. And so I decided maybe I ought to just start another 12-step program and call it On and On and On. Anybody that wants to get together, see me after the meeting. Uh, this, this talk is uh, supposed to be what I could not do for myself, and I don't believe I have enough time to list all of those things, but I will um, talk in a general way what it used to be like, uh, what happened, and what it's like now. I spent most of my life on the extremes of A feeling arrogant and that I could do everything for myself and that I needed no help, or B, that I absolutely needed somebody to do everything for me, and I vacillated back between those two extremes. It never occurred to me that there was an option C, and I always now try to think if there's an option C. And option C was to have somebody do it with me, and uh, that's kind of the point of what I want to say tonight. So if the rest of you want to go to sleep, uh, I'll, you can wake up when I finish, because that's it. Um, at any rate, my strength, hope, and experience goes something like this. Um, about the time I was five years old, I was uh, introduced to masturbation. And uh, that was an interesting, and unusual experience. I didn't know what to make of it, but by the time I was eight or nine, I clearly had a compulsive problem with it. Shortly after that, I began to expand uh, my repertoire of acting out so that I began to use chemicals. Uh, At that time, soft pornography, um, which included such things as Ladies Home Journal, the Sears Catalog. And as a nine-year-old, those are pornographic. And uh, cross-dressing behaviors uh, that were uh, at that time forbidden, and at least in my mind, and it was quite stimulating. I carried on this secret life for a long time. And by the age of 14, would a, uh, a really event happened that marked what would uh, what would follow me, part of what would follow me the rest of my life. I was alone in my home for overnight. You know, I my folks said, well, he's a responsible kid. Uh, we can leave for overnight. So they left for overnight. And I don't know how many sexaholics are like me, but when I'm alone and everybody's gone, then I am, quote, free to do anything I want to. And that was the first time that that ever occurred to me. So I started anticipating in advance. And I can remember that I was stockpiling all the chemicals and acting out paraphernalia I could come up with as a 14 year old. And, uh, when everybody was gone and it got dark, I carried up to the, uh, room upstairs about 12 ounces of gin, about, uh, you know, some tobacco, some cigarettes, Uh, anything I could think of uh, for acting out, cross-dressing. I thought, this is going to be a terrific night. And uh, as I went upstairs, it was all anticipation. And the next thing I remember is is that I woke up daylight the next morning uh, in my own vomit, uh, having caught the bed on fire and... uh, almost, I'm sure, burned down the house and killed myself. Uh, And uh, not only that, I was hungover like hell. And I had to try uh, to start what I did the rest of my life and to find out a way to cover that up. And uh, so that led to a frantic uh, flurry of activity to get things moved over before anybody came back home, which I managed to do and uh, keep things secret for another 30 years, or 25 anyway. So, uh, that had led to something that I still struggled with when I came into recovery, is that every time I was left alone, I was afraid I was going to die. I was afraid I was going to kill myself. And even when I was in 12-step recovery and had given up my acting out, I was terrified if I was going to be left alone. And... uh, I can remember about two years sober, my wife decided to take her first trip out of town and leave me at home and She told me this about three months in advance, and I absolutely drove everybody crazy in Nashville for three months talking about it in meetings. I planned it, obsessed about it, called everybody about it, and she left town and I survived i 'm standing up here tonight, so i uh, Wound up getting through that one, and the miracle is that several—I don't know—several years ago, I realized I was driving down the road, and my wife had been out of town for two days, and I hadn't even thought about it. And uh, uh, that is the first miracle in itself. Is, is that that now happened uh, to me uh, without my really even knowing it or trying to make it happen? But at any rate, uh, this, this, this sort of behavior where I could almost kill myself, uh, carried on and by the time I was an adult, I was a, a practicing physician and really had, uh, a lot of access to, uh, lethal toys, uh, for my, uh, uh, acting out pleasure. And, uh, I was, uh, quickly able to degenerate into acting out by shooting intravenous uh, Demerol and uh, uh, really locking myself up in the office any time I wanted to be so that I would be alone. And I did uh, do that a lot. I, uh, I It even went uh, further. Uh, I'd more and more crazy. I wound up... Uh, shooting things that didn't need to even be shot, such as intravenous cough syrup, while I uh, acted out. And uh, all of that is, is that I was a compulsive gambler along with being a sexaholic, and I was gambling being discovered, I was gambling with my own life, and it all became exhilarating in itself. So that those sorts of things were what terrified me for being alone, and... Uh, and and finally, those sorts of things are what led them to incarcerate me in a treatment center uh, as being dangerous to myself, which I certainly was. I uh, was uh, Before they incarcerated me in the treatment center, though, I realized that I was crazy, and fortunately I had that much insight. Uh, every time I almost killed myself, I knew that there was something wrong with that. So that about the time I was um, 32 and had come to that uh, point where I was overdosing, I sought out psychiatric help, and I went to psychotherapy twice a week for four years. Uh, and I found out some things. It is that one, as a psychiatrist, couldn't get me to stop this. You know, he told me, he says, these are neurotic symptoms, and if you talk about them enough, they will go away. Well, I talked about them for four years, and they got worse. Uh, I found out uh, that understanding the symptoms didn't make them any better. I found out that uh, understanding the symptoms and taking the medications he gave me didn't make them any better. So I was ultimately, uh, when I was overdosing, uh, at one time I took a thousand milligrams of Demerol and uh am only here because I'm lucky and uh, it was after that that I was incarcerated in a treatment center which is a long story in itself and how they handled my sexual behavior uh one thing they did though that was uh that was very interesting is is that, uh they sent me to a behavioral uh therapist who taught me to do such things that, that were useful. He gave me a rubber band to put around my wrist that I popped and uh, and whenever I thought sexual thoughts. I, you know, uh, for somebody who abused himself, uh, that sometimes was <laughs> stimulating. But at least it made me remember uh, what I was doing. Um, But I I found, you know, another thing this guy told me, and I I think that he was genuinely sincere, is he set up one exercise where I was supposed to masturbate for an hour until I got sick of it and didn't like it anymore. (laughs) Needless to say, that didn't work either. One thing that I did do out of desperation is is that I I did find one medicine that would stop my acting out. And that's a substance called Depo-Provera, if any of you all are familiar with that. Um, It it essentially chemically castrates you and makes it physically impossible to act out, which um, is a quick and easy way to technical sobriety. Uh, but it clearly demonstrates that there's a great deal of difference between technical sobriety and real sobriety because you can be just as crazy as a loon and not acting out, which I was because I had no recovery program, and yet I couldn't act out. I tried, but it didn't work. (laughs) That was the time I tried to act out that it didn't work is the kind of the bottom I hit is that I was in my own home with a syringe and a needle And I tried to start a vodka drip on myself while I acted out. And uh, uh, needless to say, I knew that wasn't going to work, but I tried it anyway. Um, So as I uh, uh, went along, uh, I had tried these various things and none of them worked. But somehow when I was incarcerated in that treatment center, it became apparent to me that I couldn't do any of this behavior again or I was going to die. Uh, and that I couldn't, didn't have a chance of staying sober from drugs and alcohol unless I was sober from my sex addiction. I mean, one went with the other. They were inseparable. So what did I do is, is that I gritted my teeth and recovered from drugs and alcohol and stayed sober. I mean, and in the treatment center, they weren't really too keen on this. I did one first step, and they made me do it three times until I got all the sex out of it. And, uh, you know, they told me that I was in denial if I talked about my sexual behavior. I, I, I mean, they were really—they uh, really didn't have much information about that uh, process back in the mid-'80s, or at least not at that time. They subsequently incorporated a whole lot of that in the treatment experience there. Well, after I got into uh, recovery, I um, was going to, came back to Nashville and just went to meetings all the time. I was going to AA meetings right and left and uh, trying my best to stay sober, get into recovery, figure out how I was going to go back to work um, because uh, nobody really wanted me very much to. uh, be in their practice since I had been stealing drugs and uh, overdosing in the uh, in the office so I was uh, going to meetings trying to find a place to practice which I did um, and one night at a meeting I was trying to you know I was trying to sort out these AA meetings and um, and this is about what happened I you know I was still I'd been sexually quote sober for six months uh, I didn't know how I was doing it. Didn't know how much longer it'd last, and I, you know, was terrified I was going to start taking drugs again any minute. And uh, after the meeting one night, I was standing there, I was looking for meetings, and I, and I, this fellow that I had recognized, uh, you know, I'd practiced medicine with him from time to time, was in the was in the meeting with me, and I goes I say, Harvey, what meetings do you go to through the week? And he goes, well, on Monday night I go to this, and on Monday night I go to this, and on Monday night I go to this, and on Tuesday night I go to this, and on, you know, he's going to three meetings a day, and you know, three on Monday, two on. T- I said, okay, Harvey. Uh, and he goes down. And he says, on Thursday night I go to Sexaholics Anonymous, and I said, what? He said, Sexaholics Anonymous, and uh, I can remember I almost melted at his feet and said, please show me and tell me. So, as he did in those days, he took me out to the trunk of his car and gave me the test.
2: <laughs> Made a hundred. <laughs>
1: so I got uh, I got started in the uh, in the recovery program in SA, and uh, and that's you know that's when a miracle happened. Uh, is that's when I realized I couldn't do it for myself, uh, which I had tried to, thought about, tried to understand, and it didn't work. I couldn't have it done for me, which I'd tried, and that didn't work. But in doing it with people, I kind of tapped into a power that I had not suspected was present, but allowed me to stay sober. Now, that uh, was kind of the uh, real beginning of the miracle. And at that time, I was also uh, sober from drugs and alcohol. And uh, I soon uh, realized that I had a primary uh, food addiction also that may have been my first addiction. Uh, all of the rest of them really messed it up. But I, I got in, I got into, uh, OA. I was in SA. I was in AA. And as I said, on and on and on. And, uh, I was going to lots and lots of meetings, somewhere between 13, 14 a week. Because every time they opened up another 12-step meeting, I went to it. And, uh, At the end of about two years, I realized that I was not exactly happy, joyous, and free. But I was clean and sober and abstinent and all those things. So I went to my physician and I said, tell me about this. I said, let me tell you about my day. And some of you have heard this, but I'm going to say it again. I said, I wake up and the alarm goes off every morning at five o'clock. I jump out of bed. I race into the kitchen and put on the tea for me to drink for my breakfast. However, because I don't have much time, I need to put hot water on the stove in order to get it to boil faster so I can have tea faster. So I turn on the spigot for it to become hot. But in our house, the hot water heater is about 300 yards from the spigot. Not really, Uh, but about... Uh, 50 or 60 feet of pipe. So it takes it a long time to get hot. So while the hot water is getting hot, I'm scrambling to get out my bowls, my equipment, all of my cereal, my fruit, stack it up there, get it ready. By that time, the water gets hot. Fill up the tea kettle, put it on. It's not boiling, so I race into the bathroom to shave. So I wash my face real fast, shave, 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 cut myself to shreds, dry off the blood, about the time the tea kettle whistles. I run back in there, pour in the tea, and decide I don't really have time for it to brew, so i start dripping the things up and down until it turns brown, and then I pour out a thing of tea. Wash down my breakfast, run into the living room where I got my seven meditation books.
2: <laughs>
1: all stacked up, and I sit down fast and get calm. read all seven of them. Don't have the slightest idea what any of them said for the whole two years I did this. But, I jump up after that, race out of the house, jump into the car, which I had backed in the night before. Race out to work. Get up to the office and say, okay, Gotta stay on time. So I'm racing around there and there are patients coming in, going here, there, and yonder, seeing patients and oh God, I gotta get to my five o'clock meeting. So I race around and finally it gets to be four thirty. I get finished, put down everything, race out of the office, up into the meeting room, get to the meeting, sit down, get calm. Sit there for an hour, get recovery. Jump up, go home. Run into the house, eat supper real fast, 90 seconds. Um, and then I look back and I said, gosh, it's getting late. i got to make phone calls to my sponsors. So I start calling on the phone, talking on the phone. Now I look at my watch. and says, oh my God, it's getting late. I'll never get enough sleep. And I really won't have enough time in the morning. So then I start getting out my bowls the night before. <laughs> Stacking them up, getting the teapot out, filling it up with the tea bags, fruits, lining it up. By the time I do that, then I'll run back and jump in bed and sleep fast <laughs> till my alarm goes off the next morning. And I do it again. And that's not happy, joyous, or free. And I couldn't do that by myself either. You know, I was clean, sober, and abstinent. And this is the way my life was. Um, so I had to continue to pursue progressive victory over insanity by applying the same set of um, principles to this behavior. And I did such things as uh, made a commitment to Harvey that I had to call him and ask permission before I got a cereal bowl out the night before. I also had to get permission if I was going to back my car in And I started reading one meditation book, and I actually did some other work to try to connect me with myself and the people with whom I was uh, uh, recovering, and I got much better. And I have been progressively better since then. I have not been free of insanity, and Judson will tell you this if he tells my story. A few years ago, I told him, I said, Judson, I'm insane. Sponsor, sharing with sponsee a little stuff. I said, I am obsessed with towel tags. You know, my obsessive compulsive personality, I couldn't have them facing to me when I hung them on the rack. It made me crazy. I'd get so anxious, I'd get up in the middle of the night and go reverse the towel. (laughs) So I tried to solve this by I tore them all off. So I thought I had this neatly in a package. And then... I got my Christmas present from Judson. It was a hand towel with about 4,000 towel tags sewed to it. Found that the other day, had a panic attack. But it's neat to know that today, those are the things that are threatening my serenity not taking a 1,000 milligrams of Demerol, not trying to kill myself, burn down the house, or do things that are life-threatening. When my biggest problem is towel tags, I think that's a miracle. And my serenity is amazing compared to what it could be, especially con- considering that I was uh, probably would be dead by now if I hadn't uh, taken on this journey. But I couldn't do it myself. I had to have somebody do it with me and and take the journey with me. Uh, as I was thinking about this, I feel like Dorothy on her trip down the Yellow Brick Road. And she was terrified and didn't know her way until she found her ragtag set of companions to make the journey with her. And... Uh, when they were all looking for something, and when they found out what they were uh, looking for, they pursued it. And then they've discovered that in finding themselves, in finding each other, they found that they already had it. And they found their solution. So, if that's where I am, I'm still on the yellow brick road. And I tend to stay on it because I think it's a journey without a destination. Um, and I, conti- and I plan to continue taking that. So, having said that, I consider that my life is a miracle, that the journey is amazing, and I would like to now introduce one of my ragtag companions. He might be the cowardly lion. <laughs> He's a man who feels a great deal of fear, but he also has a tremendous amount of courage. And uh, having said that much, I'd like for Judson to tell the rest of the story. Thanks.
0: Hi, my name is Judson. I'm a good and worthwhile person, worthy of recovery, and recovering today from my sex addiction. And, uh, and just in case anybody's wondering, everything Lee said about himself is true. <laughs> um, and, and he, you know, he reminded me, because, um, I came in about nine months after Lee did, and I was amazed that anyone could stay sober for nine months. That was an absolute eternity. And actually, back then, it was an eternity. Because, uh, I think Harvey had two and a half years, and, uh, and Gene had a couple of years or something like that. But anyway, um, and I, I knew, because I was trying to call Lee a couple, three times a day, and I knew of this behavior. And one time about, uh, uh, probably six, seven years ago, I called up Lee and I got him at about quarter to six or quarter after six. And I uh, I said, hey, Lee, how you doing? You know, so and so, you know, what are you up to? He said, oh, well, I'm just sitting here reading the paper. And I almost dropped the phone. I said, you've got time to sit and read the paper, you know, because I was so used to his... Anyway. Um, So what I could not do um, by myself, that's what uh, the topic is. And uh, just a couple of things that, that jumped out at me, you know, the obvious ones. I couldn't stop acting out. I couldn't know what was good for me. And uh, and I couldn't get well. And I tried to get well. I had tried really uh, the best way I knew how. I'd gone to the counselors. I'd gone to Al-Anon. I'd gone to ACOA. I'd brought up my sexual acting out with the therapist of my mother's group when she went to treatment for alcoholism in 1978. And, uh, and I brought it up with him and I said, you know, normal. He said, as a matter of fact, sometimes when I leave the office after a tough, stressful day, I'll rent a couple pornographic videos just to take care of the stress. <laughs> so uh, evidently I was speaking to someone who was unenlightened, But uh, but I tried really hard to get well and I couldn't do it. And I was thinking... Just in this room of sexaholics, there are probably roughly 400 people. And on average, as I've talked to people of years, it seems like everybody has tried to get well for about 20 years, on average, some longer some. So that's 8,000 years of experience in this room of trying to get well from this disease and being unable to do it until coming to a place like this. You know, I mean, if there's a better way out there, somebody probably would have found it, an easier, softer way. Um, And if anybody knows of an easier, softer way, please see me after the meeting. Um, So there's about, uh, there's three things that that came, that kind of jumped out to me while I was thinking about it, three main things I was unable to do for myself. Um, The first was perceive things correctly, unable to perceive things correctly. The second was make a correct decision as to what to do um, based on a given set of circumstances or a situation. The third thing was to take a right action even when I knew what it was I should do. In many cases, I was unable to do that. Uh, and I want to talk about each one of those things, maybe touch a little bit on why I think it happened, and then what the solution is for those, at least in my mind. The first thing is perceiving things correctly. I, was, uh, I could not perceive things correctly. And I was thinking about this, what, would it, what it was like, and I was reminded of a cartoon I had seen of Sylvester and Tweety. A lot of people remember Sylvester and Tweety. Tweety Bird is a little yellow canary. Sylvester's always trying to catch and eat, and Granny's always beating Sylvester over the head to get the canary back and stuff. Um, It was one episode, as I remember it, where uh, Granny had caught Sylvester going after Tweety a couple times, so she sat on a rocker in front of Tweety's cage so she could make sure that he was safe, guarding him. And after a little while, she fell asleep. And Sylvester came over with a paintbrush. And quick as a good artist is, he drew, he he painted a picture of Tweety Bird on each of her glasses lenses. And then he went and reached in the cage and got Tweety and swallowed him. And she woke up. And she looked at the cage and there was Tweety Bird. So, in her, I mean, the reality was, Tweety was gone. He was history. But her perception of reality was that everything was fine. Because of the distortion in her lenses because of what was put on her lenses. And I believe what was put on my lenses, whether it was genetic or whether it was the home environment I grew up in, through those lenses, I misperceive stuff around me all the time. And uh, I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, this is a typical example. sex goes into a grocery store or some other store and this is getting stuff and then goes and checks out and the checkout person says, Hi, how are you? How are you doing today? So what did the checkout person say in a friendly way? Smiled and said, Hi, how are you? How are you doing today? What does a sexaholic often hear? Hi, I love you. Let's go have sex. You know? I mean... It's the lenses. You know, I mean, it just, it's just, it's baffling. But through those lenses, that's what is truly perceived. Uh, another one is, my boss had tickets to the Tennessee Titans professional football team downtown. And whoever was supposed to use the tickets, a customer or whatever, didn't use them. It was Friday afternoon. The tickets were left over. He came down to my work area to give them to me, and I wasn't there so he put a note on my uh, desk that said Judson please see me Mike
2: <laughs>
0: okay the note from the boss please see me Mike okay so he just went what did I perceive <laughs> you slimebag.
2: <laughs>
0: we have finally found out who you are and what you're really like inside you know you're fired. You're out of here. Come up to my office and get your pink slip now. You're out of
2: here.
0: That's my perception, my shame. That Those are the lenses through which I, I walk around. Another one, uh, this happened to me last, a year ago in the fall. <clears throat> I came home one day and my wife said, Honey, you know, if, if you could, it would be help if instead of leaving your cereal bowl in the sink in the morning... If you just stick it in the dishwasher, it'd be easier and save me some trouble. Okay. So she said, if, you know, if you don't mind, please, instead of putting the cereal bowl in the sink, please put it in the dishwasher. What did I hear? What did I perceive? You idiot. How could you be so stupid? That is a stupid. And I'm sick and tired of you being so stupid. This is the last thought. Matter of fact, I'm going to get divorced. Because, and and this is the divorce that you knew was always coming anyway. I'm out of here, and you're abandoned. You know, that's what I perceive. So obviously, I don't react very well to that kind of thing. So my perception is skewed of the whole world. and, And I go through, whether it's shame or anger or fear or whatever... And I could not fix that for myself. been unable to fix that, unable to even see it. Um, the solution, I think, is the sponsor and other people in the program, co-sponsors, phone calls, talking with anybody who has the outside of view. I talk to people on the phone all the time, um, particularly at work. Whenever I get a note now that says, please see me, I pick up the phone. <laughs> or whenever I feel my teeth re- start to react because I get angry, so I clench my jaw about my wife, so I... I get on the phone with somebody Um, because something may appear or I may perceive that it's really scary but in reality it might not be a threat to me that's where Lee's talking about the the, the cowardly lion because I get terrified of a lot of things which really are of no threat to me but they feel like and doing them feel like I'm going to die but it's not real. And then there are other situations where um, my perception is this is completely safe. There's no problem. But in reality, there is a threat there. An example might be a, uh, somebody newly in recovery who's maybe got well oh, four, four to five months and is relaxed and excited and thinks they're going to go home for a two-week vacation at Christmas and not have any triggers. You know, go visit their parents and stuff like that. Anyway... Um, so, perceive things correctly. Unable to do that. Make a, make a correct decision as to what to do in given circumstances and situation. So, unable to make a correct decision as to what to do in a given circumstance or situation. One example for me is being tired Sunday afternoon. Um, I'm tired. Often on Sunday afternoon, it's been a long week. Um, been maybe stayed up a little bit later on Friday or Saturday night not going to the meeting until the evening, got the afternoon free, I'm tired, um, sleepy, what would a logical person do? Go take a nap. So what does my brain suggest that I should do? Go have sex. I mean, it, it does. It says, I know that I need to take a nap on Sunday afternoon when my brain says, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have sex? Because it's just that the, the, the brain is, is not connected. Another example I'll give you is, uh, it doesn't always have to be around disease or around sex, but another example is uh, somebody who was in our group um, one night and talked for about five or ten minutes about how great this program was. wonderful, how it's the most important thing in his life, the most valuable thing in his life, has saved his marriage, has saved his job, has saved his life, his relationship with his kids. Nothing is more valuable. It's priceless. And he is really worried because next week he's going on a trip to the Bahamas for a week, and it's too expensive to call long distance back to Nashville during that week. (laughs) This is the most priceless, important thing in my life. But it's too expensive to make, you know. I mean, you could probably talk an hour a day for $400 during the week. and But that's the kind of thinking in the brain. And uh, another one which is really my favorite. I don't think this person is here tonight. sponsee who would drive an hour and a half. Uh, I, I, well, he might be. He'll come talk to me after the meeting.
2: <laughs> but he would...
0: He would drive an hour and a half to two meetings a week, Monday and Thursday nights, so an hour and a half one way, an hour and a half another way back. And he'd come two meetings a week, Monday and Thursday. And I talked to him on the phone one time and I said, I hadn't seen you in, you know, in a little while. And I, I just wondered what's up, you know, what's going on. He said, well, I've had to cut back on my meetings. I said, oh really, how come? He said, well, I was getting too many speeding tickets. <laughs> Follow the logic here of the psychotic brain, okay? I'm getting too many speeding tickets, so I should cut back on my meetings. That'll solve the problem. Yeah. Makes sense to me, right? If, don't don't consider slowing down a little bit. No, that's not an option. But. Uh, which is why, when, especially for for newcomers, people in the first you know six eight months whatever it is, um, I like what Harvey and others say: we are not qualified to think. <laughs> it's just not qualified. And I think it's true. Even in ten years sobriety, I'm not qualified to think if it relates to me, if the situation relating to me. And I learned this from a guy in treatment who used to say, anyone out of the African. Bush or Australian uh, backlands could look at a given situation in my life and make a better decision as to what to do than I could. (laughs) I could stop somebody on the street and say, what should I do? And they'd be better. um, You know, I truly believe the brain is broken and I don't think it's about being bad. It's just having the diseased mind and I think accepting that and understanding and looking at it, I'm not bad. I just have a few wires crossed up here. Um, Then that enables me to go after the solution, which is to call the sponsor or co-sponsor or counselor or even sponsee or whoever and get an outside perspective on this situation. Because when I look at it, my perception is wrong and my decision-making is faulty. And I'm not bad. I'm just sick. But the solution is um, when I do what is suggested outside, then it's uh, often the results are a lot better. Um, The last piece um, is taking the right action, unable to take the right action, given when I know what it is. Um, For instance, I spent two and a half years in this program, actually, really got more after, after I was two years sober and I got married um, and the, the first half year of my marriage I'd, my wife liked to watch TV programs from 9 to 10 you know after her whatever the adventure kind of stuff is and all police shows and all that and uh, being newly married I wanted to do things that she wanted to do with her and I would try to sit down and watch through them and when uh, a, a suggestive scene would come on, I was unable to look away and unable to close my eyes. And uh, and I would talk to Harvey about it and I'd call him and, uh, you know, and he, by this point, had five-year sobriety and was, you know, was talking about getting up and leaving the room or closing your eyes or whatever. And I was completely unable to do that. I found for me, um, and it's often still the case, even if it's a brief commercial, if the ray of light leaves the TV and hits my eyeball, then it's as if I have toothpicks holding open my eyelids. I can't. As soon as the, as soon as the beam hits me, I'm frozen. And uh, so, even though I know what is the right thing that I think I should do, I'm unable to do it in many of those cases. I'm sure we. You know, there's there's lots of uh, lots of examples that that we could come up with that I think that uh, is just about being powerless and having a disease and for me um, the solution to that one is to be willing to let go absolutely Um, and, and, and I think that God is doing for me what I'm unable to do for myself when I'm willing to let go absolutely and for me in a lot of those situations that means willing to let go of it completely and avoid the situation or not go in the situation. As soon as I told my wife that I was unable to watch those shows with her from 9 to 10, um, I didn't have any problem with the suggestive scenes because I didn't sit down to watch those TV shows. Um, another example of that would be um, people, you know, struggling with looking at pornography in a convenience store. Well, if I'm willing to never go in a convenience store, I don't have that. Another example was willing to not have a TV. Um, I've talked about willing to have, to call a hotel before a business trip and saying, will you take the hotel away, take the TV out of the room when I come? And finding one that will, and they say, yes, we will. I say, okay, and I get there, and then I have to ensure that they take it out. But in all the time, every time I have done that, never once have I struggled with seeing something on TV. It's not an issue. <laughs> the TV's not there. And uh, today it's different. I think God is able, to, I called Lee oh, three or four years ago, and I said, uh, you know, I'm going on the trip, and um, should I get the TV out of the room? You know, it's been x, x, x. There's reasons, you know, that, that really it wasn't an issue. And he said, stay in the hotel room, and if it's a problem, give me a call. You know, it's not a problem anymore. I go in, I move the remote. It's not an issue anymore. And I think it only becomes that way when we're willing to let go absolutely for a certain period of time. I think that's the key. Um, so so those are the things for me what I could not do for myself. Perceive things correctly. Um, unable to make a correct decision as to what to do. And unable to take the right action. And I think the solutions are... Um, realizing that I can't do it. And as soon as I realize that I can't do it and let it go and call a sponsor and turn it over to someone else, then I can perceive things correctly through them and I can get the right decision of God speaking through them and I can know the right thing to do. So uh, anyway, that's all. Thanks.